This episode contains spoilers for the 2019 film, 1917. I'm Megan, and you're listening to Lens on History. In this episode, we're discussing Sam Mendes' film, 1917, with the film's historical consultant, Andrew Robert Shaw. Thanks for joining me as we look through this lens on history. Nineteen seventeen, filmed seemingly in almost one continuous take, follows two British soldiers as they travel across no man's land on a dangerous mission during the First World War. Lance Corporals William Schofield and Tom Blake, played by George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman respectively, must deliver a message in order to stop sixteen hundred soldiers from walking into a German ambush. Your orders are to get to the second at Quasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Acoust. Deliver this to Colonel Mackenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. Unlike most war films, 1917 is focused on saving lives rather than killing them. It maintains a sense of hope while not shying away from the futility and grim reality of the Great War. And, on the whole, 1917 is a very accurate film. And like any other movie we'll be discussing on the podcast, that's due to a variety of people who've worked very hard behind the scenes. In this episode, we have the immense privilege of hearing from one of those very people, Andy Robertshaw, one of 1917's historical consultants. Andy is a military historian, author, and broadcaster. He was previously director of the Royal Logistic Corps Museum, and before that, head of education at the National Army Museum in London. During his career, he has lectured to international audiences on many aspects of military history. And for the past 20 years, he's been conducting archaeological projects on the Western Front. Andy's publications include various articles and essays, and books on military history for young people. His newest publication is a book on the Battle of the Somme. Over the past 15 years, Andy has regularly appeared in archaeology and military history series. He is best known, though, for work on films such as Steven Spielberg's War Horse, Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old, and, of course, 1917. He is currently working on the film Operation Mincemeat, while building a replica trench system and restoring a Victorian house in Kent. Thank you so much for joining me, Andy. Could you just start us off by talking a bit about your background, how you came to be a historical advisor for films, and what drew you to that? I began as a teacher in high schools um, for seven years. Uh, Then I then moved to the National Army Museum, courtesy of a very famous, at the time, military historian called Brigadier Peter Young, who wrote me a splendid reference. Uh, I saw a copy of it later in... uh, um, my life, uh, shortly after he died when his papers arrived at the museum, it said that I was going to be a very, very good asset to the museum, but he wasn't certain he wanted me uh, with him in the war, which I thought was elliptical, but there we are. Um, I then, um, while at the museum, began to do TV work, um, largely for BBC and then Canadian TV. Um, That then led to a variety of projects and TV series, 
and it wasn't until I left the Army Museum in 2007 that the opportunity came up of working uh, on uh, Warhorse through a mutual friend in the business who happened to be actually um, the armourer on the, the production. Um, and um, sure enough, I, I got the job and uh, that was a, a game changer. And then from there on, it was uh, working on Wonder Woman, ultimately uh, working for Peter Jackson, and then straight from there into Kingsman and 1917. What does the role of historical advisor entail in general and what specifically have you done and especially in 1917 what did you do okay i i think the term possibly should be consultant insofar as the production will consult you if they want an answer mm. if they've already made their mind up they won't consult you so um providing unwanted advice particularly on location or on set is not a wise move uh, if the director has decided that the principal actor will, re re will refer to a sergeant as Sant, um, that's great. If they want to call them Sarge, which is what happens in 1917, it was something I and the other uh, military advisor advised against, but we were told people wouldn't understand. So you have to basically know when to shut up as well as when to speak up. <laughs> that makes sense. What to you is the value of portraying history on screen? I think no matter how many books I write, and I've written quite a few, and how many television documentaries I, I've involved in, if you've got the opportunity to bring the role of horses to an international multi-million audience, or possibly an unknown piece of the Great War, the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line, frankly, Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, or, or Sam Mendes can touch a bigger audience than I can, bearing in mind that what they're producing is a drama and not a documentary, which also means that more people will see it. How do you um, balance or unite fact and accuracy with the storytelling and entertainment side? Uh, okay, well, let's just take an example, not from 1917, but from uh, at War Horse. Uh, those guns that they produced for the film uh, were lovely. Um, actually, to be effective, they would fire from behind the hill. But the drama called for the guns to be pulled uphill by horses, which would never have happened. Therefore, that's what's going to happen. There's no point saying, look, everybody, wouldn't it make more sense to leave them exactly where they are and do the shooting sequence from here? Because clearly a big part of the drama depends on that. In exactly the same way as uh, people have said, well, why in 1917 didn't they simply send an airplane out to find the battalion and drop a message to say stop? Well, to be perfectly honest, in 1944, in the American army, it would have been very, very easy to have actually put out a message to all units that had a, a private Ryan telling him to come back to the beach. But that wouldn't have been much of a movie. Mm -hmm. I know you touched on in 1917 how they referred to sergeants. Are there any other parts of the film where there had to be a sacrifice in regards to either fact and accuracy or storytelling and entertainment? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, to some extent, uh, um, the, the big one that stands out for me is Benedict Cumberbatch um, swearing at a, another rank. It's the one thing you don't do as an officer. 
it, it, it was required for the drama. It made a point, but a senior, an officer of any sort, swearing at a, another rank, um, other than in great extremists, and you could argue that was what was being shown there, but by that point, the decision had been made. Um, so therefore, it, it was making a dramatic point, but was certainly taking a license with um, the reality of officer-man relations, at least in the British Army. Is there a part of the film that you're particularly proud of for historical reasons? I, I like the early sequences with the trenches because we're able to get into it, that mix of service units, mail, cooking, laundry. So we're able to see very early in the movie that although people are expecting an action film, what they're actually getting is a portrayal of the Western Front in depth rather than breadth, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're going from front to back, we're going through the various mazes of trenches, right up to the front line, into no man's land, and then that, that vast expanse of no man's land before they then disappear into the tunnel system, uh, which, by the way, takes the, the viewer um, from um, effectively just north of London uh, into Oxfordshire. Uh, and when they come out of the quarry, they've actually come up into uh, um, Salisbury, Wiltshire. Um, they actually move through three different counties in that sequence uh, of covering what would is, is effectively about a linear mile. Wow. And one of the most interesting things to me is talking to the designer who explained how the size of various locations depended upon the amount of dialogue because they had to be seen to be moving at a natural speed and therefore the dialogue about cherries in the cherry orchard is because that's how much dialogue there was as they move through it. They didn't want it any bigger, they didn't want it any smaller. And it's worth saying that the, 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 the house that they go into is a, um, an homage to uh, the John Ford film, The Searchers with John Wayne. It's actually the same layout as that building and has the same focal point which if you watch it again, you'll recognize that, that they reference early on the pump and the pump then features again, what we know where it features in the film. So it, it, it's a series of, of nods to other filmmakers in addition to actually being its own device. Well, that's so fascinating. Was that that homage just to make it more interesting or was that connection to the searchers intended to relate thematically as well? I mean, the search is, is, is hunting for something. So, mm -hmm. again, it, it's, it's more than a nod to that. And obviously John Ford as well, who served in the Second World War and filmed that. Um, and oddly, I've worked quite recently on um, Death on the Nile uh, with Kenneth Branagh. And he wanted the battlefield sequences there to be a, an homage to Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, um, which caused me some problem because he then proceeded to change it but you know he's the director I'm not um so you've got to be aware that, that directors can actually be referencing other filmmakers and other films in addition to the, the, the production that you think they're making I'm definitely going to have to go back and rewatch the movie and keep an eye out for those moments um what do you think 1917 uniquely offers in comparison to other films about World War One? I? I suppose 
it has the over-the-top sequence that that's that's going to be required, isn't it? Although it's used in a different way, we see um, a senior officer who is very conscious of the futile loss of life a mistake by somebody else will make. So rather than seeing, as you get in Peter Weir's Gallipoli, units being sent over to be massacred for no apparent reason, here we actually see um, a British army that's trying to conserve life rather than lose it, which is against the, basically the trope of most uh, films about the Great War, well, all of them, as far as I'm aware, up until now. And then the clear thing that we get there is then the open countryside because the Germans have withdrawn up to 30 miles. We're no longer in, in the battlefield of the Somme. It's now open ground. And that caused some confusion with people about, because they weren't ready for it, that they weren't ready that that should exist. And sure enough, it, it did. But, you know, it, it, it's a way of making people think about the Great War in another way. I found the part of the film where um, Schofield meets the Sikh soldier to be really interesting. It piqued my curiosity, especially because it seems that that kind of diversity isn't seen commonly in many historical films. Can you tell me a bit more about how that came to be in the film? Okay. Um, I worked with Eileen Yip, born in Hong Kong, very carefully about crowd and crowd casting. Mm. I wrote various documents for the production, looking at the potential ethnic diversity that there would have been in the various units that we see. So, for example, there's a unit there that comes from East Surrey, Schofield and Blaker and the East Surreys. East Surrey includes a, a big chunk of London. London in the 16th century had a black population. By the, the, the First World War, there are going to be blacks and mixed race soldiers in there. The Indian Army was much, much bigger on the Western Front in 1914 to 15. But by 1917, largely their cavalry and other units. So having even a single Sikh soldier is not impossible. And that, that truck that they're on is carefully labelled as being basically the reinforcements, the replacements. So it's making the point, it's a mixed group of people from Scotland and Northern England and Southern England all together for a brief period, showing the, 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 the mix of people that would be reflected in the British Army. Bearing in mind, of course, that Sam Mendes's grandfather, uh, um, Alfred Mendes, was half Portuguese, half Creole. So, so he again was mixed race. So we had to be very aware of what we were showing. And it did cause in the UK a minor problem with people being very, one actor being very racist and saying it was wrong, they weren't there, which shows how you have to actually uh, be very careful and say, yes, they are there and they're there in large numbers, you know. It's so cool to realize that what people might think is a 21st century update is actually this very true and important reflection of history. What other sources did you use when preparing for the film? I worked very carefully with D David Crossman, who was in charge of the military costumes, um, to ensure that we picked units that were there in the area between uh, Arras and Acoust, uh, although the, the, the wooded at Acoust is on the other side of the village, but let's not worry about that. Um, and then ensuring that, that we didn't feature units 
that people in the UK reenact because that would be kind of a little strange. Instead, we went for the 18th division, um, ATN, well, that's, it's a pun from the, 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 the divisional commander, Ivor Max, he loved puns. So the ATN you'll see on the envelope is 18. Um, and then we very carefully worked with the graphic departments and everybody to ensure that we did it because the 18th division were all volunteers and in very rapidly became a very good unit. So we picked a unit with a good reputation to portray and then ensured that the units that went with it were then complementary. And the, the, the Devons, oddly, it wasn't the second Devons, it was the eighth and ninth Devons. They are the unit that do indeed attack the, the village, it's not a town, of Acoust at exactly the same time that we see in the film. So there had to be Devons in it as, as well. Uh, and again, there were some problems there because people were saying, oh, well, there weren't many Devon accents. The reason for that is that by 1917, units that had been exclusively raised in a particular county were now much more homogenous. So they wouldn't necessarily be full of people um, sounding like, like uh, um, uh, cod pirates, you know. Am I correct in thinking that part of the work that you did as well was working with those extras, talking to them about what it would have been like to be a soldier in the war? Can you give us a snippet of what you would have said to them about that? Okay, well, I mean, uh, on various days when people were waiting, I was sort of dispatched off to the, to the lunch area and would give an impromptu talk. I'd already spoken about the uniform and equipment and how things worked. But this was then a chance to say to them, look, at this point in the war, people like you think this is what's happening in the war. You know, they are aware that it's changing. They do not know at this point. In fact, I'm not going to tell you what they don't know. And what I did is I told them what the mindset was of soldiers by that point in the war and, and why they were mot motivated to do what they were doing. I did exactly the same thing, by the way, for the Germans in Spielberg's film, um, because he is a little rough at times, uh, I think, on German actors that they felt anyway. So, you know, why would they want to fight for the fatherland? And we went through all of that. So it's a, a way of actually telling people about the history. So when they are on location, when they're on set, I make it point that they have a responsibility to represent those people well. You know, they are not stupid. They are not, you know, uh, uh, fools to do what they're doing. They think it's the right thing because they don't know there'll be a second world war. They don't know what's going to happen next. They think it's the war to end all wars. And all of that helped to build up this picture of these soldiers, you know, who might be at times very fed up, but could nonetheless, you know, smile in adversity. And in the very, very bad weather conditions that we had early on, um, at least one person said to me, if my great granddad can do this for four years, I can do this for four weeks. And I thought that was important. Mm. Do you have a favorite behind the scenes story from working on the film? Um, I think it's actually watching the prop department lay out 36 sets of uniform, ID tags, pay books, maps, so that each of those deaths of which we only see one 
is virtually identical to the other one. Now, as they're only going to show one take and there are no cuts, it doesn't matter. But what they wanted to do was to make sure that whichever one they picked, everything was the same as the previous take. And I, and I think in the end, they used something like 18 or 20 sets of everything um, to make that work. Um, and the other thing to watch out for is the camera move that follows the plane crash. Because if you watch the plane, you see it crash, you then see the camera move round past the left wing, the port wing. It then goes behind the pilot. Now, you can't do that because there's a fuselage in the way. The fact is that the actual aircraft on the ground had a big chunk missing so the cameraman could walk through the aircraft. But you, unless you look at it again, you won't spot it. And in the same way as the handover, when he leaves the woodland, the handover there from a handheld camera to a jib, then back to people on the ground and then to a vehicle was seamless. And once you watch it, you realize that there is a point in that when the runners actually are running in uniform because they've been dressed as soldiers because they then have to blend in with the extras, sorry, supporting artists as they go over the top because there's no way they can get clear in time. That's so fascinating. Um, what do you most hope someone comes away with after watching 1917? I, I think a, a, a sense of, of that, that circle, really, of, of going from just sitting against a tree to within 24 hours sitting against a tree in a different world. Mm -hmm. Because war, death in war is random, and the experience of war can be absolutely mundane. I remember speaking to a veteran who said to me, uh, my war boy, he said it was 90% bore stiff, 9% frozen stiff, 1% scared stiff. And I think that film helps to show the boredom, the fact that actually it's not very exciting, but then suddenly it can be, um, and how you respond to it. Um, so I think the idea of going away from it, it's not Saving Private Ryan, it, it's not a remake of, of the, the Passchendaele movie. It's a film that stands in its own right and tells a story of a period of the war that has never been talked about before. I love that perspective on it. It really is so different from any other film about war. If you could make a movie about any historical moment, what would it be? I'd like to make a movie actually about the experience of people coming back from the Great War. Coming back to a house like the one I'm in now, um, there was a family here in, in, in 1914. Um, I don't know for a fact whether their son served, but I suspect they did. Um, but then the idea of most soldiers coming back, 11% of British soldiers died. That means that obviously, you know, 89% come back. No one ever talks about that one. They're the forgotten soldiers. We remember the dead ones. We, we have the, 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 the ceremonial on the 11th of November. We have the armistice day. People go and, and, and lay flowers and they, they go to the cenotaph and they go to the Western Front. But what they don't think about is those people like my granddad, John Andrew, who came home and then had to get on it, it, with his life in a completely different world. Um, and for him, it was a completely different world. I'd be so interested to watch that movie. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Other than the films that you've been involved with, do you have a favorite historical film? Um, favorite historical? Uh, Master and Commander. Mm. Peter Weir again. 
Um, Gordon Laco, who lives in Toronto, was the sailing master on that. He's a great friend of mine, uh, ex-Canadian uh, Navy, uh, did everything he could to get that right and then worked on some of the early um, parts of the Caribbean before they got silly. Um, so that's a film I'd love to see a prequel or a sequel to that film. Um, uh, oddly enough, um, it, in the world of movies, they took the novel and they changed it completely because they talk about that the ship being built in an American shipyard in the movie. The reason is in the actual novel, the ship's American. Uh, but it wasn't possible in um, the world of movies to have a film in which the enemy for the Brits in the Napoleonic period is, is the Americans. Um, so they turned to the French, which is obviously much more understandable. That's a good film. Um, do you have any further sources or books that you would recommend on World War I? Um, I mean, the ones I've written um, include 24-hour trench, which is just the nuts and bolts of 24 hours in a trench, followed by 24 hours under attack because they wanted to then me to talk about battles, but battles were very rare. You know, it, it was about staying alive and just staying as comfortable as you possibly could. Um, so those, for, for me, would be two, but also then uh, Digging the Trenches, which is a book which I worked on with... Uh, Dr. David Kenyon on the archaeology of the Great War and were able to tell the story of three soldiers who were unknown to history but their story was revealed when we found them um, and I was hoping this month to be in France with Walter Rapp who was the grandson of one of the men that, that, that we found. It's a very odd way of making friends is finding their granddads. Well thank you so much this was wonderful. Oh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lens on History. If this interview's piqued your curiosity and you'd like to learn more about Andy and his work, please check out his website, andyrobertshaw.wordpress.com. And you can also find him on Twitter at andyrobertshaw1. For a list of sources consulted and more reading, watching, and listening materials, including those Andy mentioned, please head over to lensonhistory.wordpress.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, remember to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts.